Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where the goal is to build up the Bride of Christ. Now today, our topic is not a difficult one. It's not a, a, a very complex one. Uh, it's very, very simple. In fact, it, it moves very much towards simplicity, and yet it's also something that I think is incredibly challenging. Uh, and if we're honest, if we're humble about it, I think it, it's quite convicting to most modern American Christians at the very least. Uh, this might not be as much of an issue uh, some other places in the world, but certainly it is an issue in our own neighborhoods and in our, in our own hearts, I think. Uh, so we're going to be reading uh, all through a, a number of different passages in Scripture. It's a topic that comes up a lot, so I don't think we're going to have to really stretch anything in Scripture to be convicted, uh, but we are just going to read the Word and we're going to talk about it. So uh, join me, if you will, um, in looking to uh, this idea of oneness, oneness in Jesus Christ. And we're going to start in John chapter 17. Uh, there's a prayer there where Jesus is uh, at the Last Supper, and he's praying for his disciples. He is, uh, it's his, uh, it's often called the high priestly prayer because he's, he's speaking to the Father on behalf of his people, uh, his disciples, and uh, it's a quite profound prayer. It's rather challenging to think that this is the last uh, significant uh, prayer, if you will, that, that Jesus intentionally sort of leans into with his disciples. Of course, he, pr he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't have a lot of details about that. He, of course, prays to the Father on the cross. Uh, but this is a, this is a really big one. Uh, it's long. Uh, there's a lot there, and what we're talking about is a simple chunk of it today. So let's take a look. Um, we're reading in, in John chapter 17 and verse uh, 20 through 26. Uh, Jesus prays, he says, I do not ask for these only, that is, he's just been praying for the twelve, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So now, hopefully as you read this, uh, it's already fairly evident uh, that we aren't doing a very good job of this as Christians. Actually, I was reading with my kids, and I finished, and, and my oldest daughter... Ingrid says, uh, she's 12, she says, um, Dad, we don't do a very good job of that, do we? <laughs> I thought, I said, absolutely not, Ingrid, we don't. But I want to draw out some of the, the implications of what's being said here, because it's, it's huge, I mean, these are huge statements when you pause long enough to consider. So let's look at that, okay? So Jesus says, uh, for instance, that... Uh, he's praying for those who will believe in me through the disciples, right? And then he says this. 
He wants, he is asking that they may all be one. And then he says, just as. All right. So he's going to say, Father, I want them to be one just as what? Um, just as a football team's fans all wear the same clothes and, and go to the game together, uh, just as we have, you know, strong school spirit, just as, just as our, uh, our corporate office shares these uh, joint vision and values. No, he says, ju just as what? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. <laughs> so, so he says, think. Think, if you will, of the unity between the Father and the Son. And he says, that's how I want them to be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That's pretty big language. But then it gets even more intense, right? He says, that, so that they also may be in us. Okay, so think, think again, unity of the Father and the Son. And then he says, and then unify them so that they can be in us as well. Okay, so there's this incredible sense of, like, mind-boggling unity. And, and, and to try to trace out exactly how it works uh, is probably beyond uh, human figuring out. Uh, but he, he, he wants this to happen so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus says the belief of the world, the, the, the belief of the world that Jesus was indeed from the Father rests, at least in some degree, on the unity of his followers. So when the world looks at the followers of Jesus Christ, if we are one, he says, then the world will see and they will believe, Father, that you have sent him. Now, how convicting is that <laughs> to us as Christians? If, we, if we're fighting against each other, what does it do? It causes the world to believe less that Jesus was indeed from the Father. And so Jesus says, it, it, you know, Father, make them one so they'll know that I'm from you. And then, and then it goes, I, this, and, and it's just, just crazy, <laughs> really. He says, the glory that you have given me. So think of the glory that the Father gave to the Son. He says, I have given it to them so they may be one, even as we are one. Right? So, again, uh, the, the Son says, hey, God, you have glorified me. Father, you have glorified me. I gave them the same glory so that they would be one like we are one. I in them, and then <laughs> I in them, and you in me. So they may become not just largely one, but perfectly one, Again, so that the world may know that you sent me. And furthermore, this oneness proves that the Father has loved them even as you loved me. Okay, so <laughs> the oneness of the body of Christ, the unity of the body of Christ declares to the world that Jesus is indeed from the Father and that the Father's love for us is as the Father's love for the Son. That is, that is why Jesus said he is praying for, the, for his followers, for all who would believe through the testimony of the disciples, through their ministry, he said, make them one, Father, so that they might be together and that they might be in us as I am in you and you are in me. And, and, and these are like, these are just, I mean, when again, think of the unity between 
God the Father, and between Jesus Christ, his only Son, and that unity, then, he intends for us to share with them. And this is a testimony to the world. So I don't think that we can overstate the importance of unity within the body of Christ. I don't think you can really overstate it. These are huge things wrapped up in it that Jesus himself is praying. You know, and we're not just going for like implications, trying to read between the lines, but these are just direct statements of Jesus. He says, Father, make them one so the world will believe that you sent me. Father, make them perfectly one so the world will know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me. And then he, he goes on, and there's just a few more things that I want to draw out here. As he prays this, he says, Look, even Father, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Why? Well, we've believed in him, we've been united to him, and he has shown to his disciples, he has shown this glory, and he wants them to witness all of it. And he says, his prayer is, in this call into oneness and into him, he said, I want them to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay? So this idea of God loving loving his children, loving the disciples, loving the, the future believers, even as Jesus was loved, right? He says, this kind of love that was before the foundation of the world, Jesus wants us to witness that. We want, he wants us to witness the glory that he was given because the Father loved him. So I'm going to skip ahead uh, to Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, because Jesus is saying, Father, you glorified me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul is going to write this. He's going to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, so our blessings are found in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay? Now, there's some disagreements over exactly how this choosing happens and what does that mean predestination-wise. I don't want to get into that except to, to point out this, that Jesus says that the Father gave him glory because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And then he also then, Scripture is going to teach us in Ephesians 1, that, that the Father who loved Jesus before the foundation of the world chose us to be blessed in Jesus also before the foundation of the world. And so remember Jesus said that, that he wants the world to know in our unity, in our oneness, that the way the Father loved him was also the way that he loved us. And Paul reiterates that in Ephesians 1, right? That Jesus, chosen before the foundation of the world and loved before the foundation of the world, has shared that blessing with us because when Christ is chosen in love before the foundation of the world, everyone who is in Christ also receives that love in Christ. Right? So our identity with Christ is not something that we sort of um, earn or, 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 or begin to deserve, uh, that, that God sort of stumbles upon later. But it, it's, it's as if the Father says, uh, before the foundation of the world to the Son, he says, I love you, 
you are the you you will you will be the Messiah to these to to a whole people who will all also be my children. And so everyone who is in you is also my son or my daughter, even as you are my son. And it stretches, this is something again that stretches back to the foundation of the world. And Jesus ties this love and the evidence of this love and the evidence of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, he ties it all to our oneness. Jesus says, when we are one, then the world will see and believe this. And so when we look at this oneness then, of course, we, we understand that God, that's the he here, God put all things under his feet, and that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so it, it, Paul, Paul is saying, look, the church, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church. Now, Jesus doesn't have many bodies. He has one body. There is only one body. And so Jesus says, if my mission, if my love, if my invitation to the world is to be known rightly, it will be reflected, it will be shown, it will be spoken of, it will be celebrated in, my, in the one body, which is the church. And so uh, we, we get this wrong when in our heads we divide up Christians against Christians by any I would say any criteria other than Christ. So let's look at another scripture here for a minute. So in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul writes this. He says, For just as the body is one, and it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and this applies, he says, to Jews, to Greeks, to slaves, to free. We're all made to drink of one single spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So here's where it starts to get convicting, I think. We as Christians, what we like to do is uh, when we first come to Christ, we don't know squat. We don't know anything about God, really. Uh, we might believe, that, well, of course, we believe that he exists. If we're going to come to Christ. And we believe that Jesus uh, did something to reconcile us to the Father, that, that, that Jesus made a way for us to be um, made right with God the Father. And depending on where you're at denominationally, you might, you might not agree exactly on the mechanics of how that works, exactly how it is that Jesus fixes the problem that we're enemies of God and we need to be made right to him. There is disagreement by people in the exact mechanism. But when you become a believer, the essence of that is that you believe that you're being made right with God the Father is through the work of Jesus Christ. And at some point you believe that and you are saved. I believe this is what scripture teaches that you, you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. Paul puts it uh, very clearly in Romans, which we'll see in a little bit. 
So, so what happens is you have this initial encounter when you don't know anything, you don't know anything about God, basically, or about his word. All you, all you do is you come to this realization that you need somebody else to make you right with God, and that somebody else was Jesus, and you trust in that, and you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved. And at that moment, Paul say, you're baptized into one body. You are, whether you like it or not, you are baptized into one body. One body. Whether you're Jew or Greek, you know, whether you're of, of Abraham's physical descendants or not, whether you're a slave, whether you're free, whether you're rich or poor, you are baptized into one single body. There is no two bodies. There's no two groups. There's no two uh, sections of it. It's one single body. But then, after we become saved, then we start to learn things, and we, we, we read our Bible, and we, we start to get ideas about how things work. And as we learn, we, we might get sort of fascinated by it, and we might see the importance of certain things in the Bible and how, how the things that we believe are going to affect the way that we act and speak and talk and, and the way we worship. And, and so we start to get these ideas about those things, and then, and then, and then we forget. We forget that we're not saved because of our theology, but we're saved because of the work of Christ. And we start to think, oh, now I know these things. These things are what are making me acceptable to God. These things are what are saving me. And then we look around us and we're like, oh, well, for other people to be right with God, they also need to believe these same things I believe because it's true. And so then, then we, start to, we start to create these little walls and we say, you need to believe these things to be a part of, of my fellowship to be a part of my, and we'll, we'll even say my church, right? And so we make clubs of people who all believe the same things, and then we will label these things as essential. <laughs> Somebody sent me a meme today about uh, two people shooting at each other over disagreeing on what were called secondary issues. But the reality is, my friends, in the body of Christ, there are <laughs> they're all secondary issues except for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it seems insane to say this, right? It seems just absolutely insane to say this. But if Scripture is to be believed, there is only one criteria. It's, it's all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, right? That's it. They're saved. And if you're saved, you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you share in the one spirit. And then that means you're part of the one body. And so you can be wrong about everything else, everything else. You can be wrong about all kinds of really, really important doctrinal issues and still be saved and still be part of the body. But what we tend to do is we rank things in terms of their importance and we start taking things that, that actually won't, in the, in, the end, in the end, they won't get you unsaved. They might get you messed up, but they won't get you unsaved. And we'll take all kinds of these things and we'll make them criteria for belonging. And, and, it's, and it's, crazy how, how, it's crazy how this works. So, uh, for instance, I'm part of a healthcare sharing ministry. We don't have traditional health insurance. We're, we're part of, it's called Samaritan's Ministry, uh, where believers uh, send money to each other. They submit bills when they have to go to the hospital or whatever, and then other believers reimburse them for that. It's all organized. It's kind of a neat system. Um, but you know what? That healthcare sharing ministry, it has a doctrinal statement. Like, you're not qualified to bear the burdens of other believers in this way of sharing if you don't believe to a certain set 
of beliefs that are defined in their, I guess, in their idea as essentials. And I just look at it and I go like, how is it that, like, can we imagine Jesus saying like, bear one another's burdens except if somebody's sort of messed up about this one doctrinal issue, like, um, then then don't bear their burdens. They're on their own. Um, it, it just seem it seems a little bit twisted, right? It seems a little bit messed up that to be a part of a of a Christian organization of people who want to like in some way honor their Lord, right, by by sharing medical costs to each other and not funding things like abortion. Like it seems odd that to be a part of that, you would also have to have a. It's not, and and honestly, in all, in all fairness, it's not a huge, deep, terribly comfort, you know, um, not a, not a terribly um, specific, uh, overly nitpicking doctrinal statement. Put it that way. Uh, but but nonetheless, it remains like you could be a, a a believer in Jesus Christ if you were a brand new believer and you read that doctrinal statement. You might not even understand what have what some of those things meant or what their supposed significance were, and yet you, and so you just say, yeah, well, I'm I'm sure I agree with that because I'm a Christian, right? Because you don't know what it means. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's how the ministry is is set up, and and that's how your local church fellowship is set up, where it's like. Uh, almost every church to to be a member of the church to be a a, a full sort of participant in the fellowship of worship, worshiping Jesus Christ at some point sooner or later you have to ascribe to a set of doctrinal beliefs that somebody came up that they defined as as essential as as matters of first importance but here's the problem with that someday we're going to get to heaven and there are going to be people who didn't agree with you on those matters of first importance, and you're going to look over there, and you're going to see them. And the and the Father is, is going to come up to you, and he's going to say, you see this guy? Um, he's your brother. And Jesus is going to come over and say, you know how much of the cross I endured for, for this guy, for his salvation? Do you, do you know what I went through uh, to pay for, for him to be here? And, and how about you? How did you treat him? Well, you treated him as an outsider and as an enemy, and maybe you went on the the internet and you lambasted his his terribly heretical beliefs, and you know, and you re- you scorned him, and you you held him up to public shame before the world, and and your other neighbor who's not here, honestly, he watched you do this, and he got so disgusted by it that he just said, "Well, that can't be real," uh, and so so. What do you have to say for yourself? And, and, and what, you know, what are we going to say? Like, well, Jesus, I didn't know you died for him. Because we do know he died for them, right? In, in Galatians 3, look at this. Now, now faith has come. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And and you'll notice that Paul didn't say as many of you as were baptized in the right way or by the right person or with with the right words. He says, were you baptized into Christ? Then then you've put on Christ. He says, "So, so there's not Jew and Greek. There's not slave and free. There's no male and female. You are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Whether you like it or not, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to the promise. So the promise of God is that if you are in Christ, you are heirs of the promise to Abraham, that you would be God's people. Whether you like it or not, you are one with that brother who has these bizarre, weird 
fruity, unbiblical beliefs, right? And when he looks at you, maybe he describes you as the one with the bizarre, fruity, unbiblical beliefs. I don't know. Probably he doesn't think your head's totally screwed on straight, or he would be a part of your church instead of his own. And the, and the point of it all, though, is this. You're one. There's one Spirit. There's one Lord. There is one God and Father over us all. And the world is dying, and the world is going to hell, and the world is looking at us as Christians and seeing how we talk about and how we treat other Christians and going like, well, that's a mess. That can't possibly be true. Look at the two of them. You know, if you get three Christians together, you got 16 different opinions between the three of them on, on how any of this doctrine works. And they're, they're all willing to die for it and to, to go to war over it. And uh, if they seem to be getting along right now, just wait like five or ten years, and then half of those people won't even be a part of the church. Right? So, I alluded to Romans 8 earlier. Here's what Paul says. No, not Romans 8. Sorry, it was a misspeaking. Romans 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified... And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And I just want you to notice this. Like, where in there does it say, and with the brain, one gets the right doctrine and then deserves salvation? It doesn't. Right? It doesn't. It says, with the heart, you believe what? That Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. With the heart, you believe that and you're justified. And with your mouth, you confess it and you're saved. For the scripture says... Everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Again and again and again and again and again, Paul says, without distinction, there is one body, there is one name through whom we must be saved. And, and it's not Calvin or Arminius. It's not Wesley. It's not Jonathan Edwards. It's not John Piper or John MacArthur. It's not even John the Baptist. It's not even John the Disciple. It's Jesus Christ. There is one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. And if we are in Christ, we are one body. And the world is looking at us, brothers and sisters, and the world says it's all bunk. Why? Because we can't love each other. Because we're always mistreating each other and dividing against each other and condemning each other and cursing each other and resenting each other and slandering each other and, and in pride exalting ourselves over one another. And we just got to stop it. We've got to repent. There is one body. Now, to be sure, that doesn't mean that every doctrine that's taught by every church is equally true. Absolutely not. And it doesn't mean that having other beliefs that are true is unimportant. It's absolutely important, and it's valuable, and it's good. But what it does mean is that no matter how wrong another believer is, if Jesus Christ is truly Lord, then they're your brother or they're your sister. So my family has been 
looking for a fellowship to, to worship with, to be a part of our regular rhythms of worship on Sunday mornings. Um, and we have, we have, uh, we've traveled to some different, some fairly different uh, worship styles, and some of them seem more comfortable uh, to us, and some of them seem uh, in a way like, uh, like we could contribute more in, in one given fellowship than another. We all have gifts, and, and we ought to go where God can use them. Um, and, and so, ultimately, of course, we can't be a, be a regular part of every single church around us, uh, and so we'll, we'll pick one. Um, but the, the reality of the matter is that that doesn't make any of those other people less our brothers and sisters. And there has been a sort of a, a joy and kind of a, a unique um, bit of blessing to walking into a church building on, uh, where, where it's full of strangers and saying, these also are my brothers. These people also, for them, Christ died, and they have received that, and they have recognized that, or many of them. Um, and and so there's this, in some way, there's this promise and this a delightful aroma if we come into a fellowship of believers, even ones who hold differing convictions on certain issues, and we say, these also are my brothers. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so there's your challenge. There's your encouragement. And if you will, there's also your rebuke. Which brother or sister are you treating as not a member of the body of Christ? Because whether you like it or not, if you, if you acknowledge Christ, then you are bound together. You share in one spirit with those brothers and sisters. And uh, I don't think the Father is going to be happy if you let a feud over one thing or another divide you from your family. And, and, it, and if you have, lamentably, if you have been burned by people in the church playing games like this, dividing up the body of Christ, and you've sort of washed your hands of the whole church thing, and maybe you're just, I can be a Christian at home, I want to challenge you to come back to the body of Christ and recognize that there's one body and we need each other, and God is designed for us to have that fellowship and love and challenge and conviction and encouragement from each other, and we do need that. And so come back and be reconciled to your brothers and your sisters, to the people whom Christ loved enough to die for them. Yeah, they might be wrong. They might be seriously wrong. And they might be seriously and obstinately wrong. They're still your siblings. I have six kids. I love them all dearly. They're all very unique. They all have different values uh, in terms of the ways they want to spend their time, the things they like and appreciate, the things that don't interest them. They're all very different. And sometimes they step on each other's toes because of that. But when they're fighting, I don't look at them and say, all right, well, we'll just have six different families here in our household. I look at them and I say, I don't care who's right and who's wrong and who's smarter and who's not. You're both my children, and I love you both, and I will not have you treating each other that way. And I kind of imagine that our Heavenly Father looks at us that same way and says, you know what, less important at this moment than who's right is are you going to love each other? And once we can come back to that place of loving each other, now we can talk about the places of disagreement, but we're not going to do it at the expense of the family that we are. And so I love, I love, I love the regular weekly fellowship that I have with other pastors who are part of different denominational strains here in Eagle Grove. Uh, one of 
I've got, this is, this is just frankly just one of my greatest delights is that on my fasting and prayer team, I have uh, a couple Roman Catholics who are a part of that team and uh, some, um, some people from all sort of different denominational backgrounds, Lutherans and evangelicals. And, and it's a delight to me to know that all these people love the Father and they love what's true and they're willing even to pray for a brother who they they probably aren't always going to agree with uh, on the stance that I take on some matter of teaching or whatever. But they, they love Christ more. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think if we all did that well, then the world would look at us and their opinion of who Jesus Christ is would be dramatically changed. So if you'd like to do a little bit more reading on this topic, Francis Chan wrote a book um, just recently within the last year or two called Until Unity. It is excellent. It is absolutely worth the price of admission. Uh, buy it, read it. Um, uh, and, and I imagine also I, I, I seem to see hints of God doing some sort of this um, restoration, this healing of rifts among his children um, throughout our country. And, and so Please pray for that. Uh, pray that God would would make us one, um, so that the world would see and believe that and know that that God sent Christ to make us right with Him, and that He loved us in the way that He loved His Son. So, God bless you, my brothers and sisters. Uh, even if you disagree with me today, I still love you, and I will still say at the end of the day, I'm looking forward to all eternity in heaven with you with our older brother Christ and with God the Father of us all. Mm -hmm.